Hello. Good afternoon. For those of you who don't know, I'm Claire Sawyer, the programmer for Young Readers here at Adelaide Writers Week. Thank you so much for coming to hear this fascinating session. I'm delighted to be joined by C.S. Picard and Lyndall Clipstone to discuss dark fantasy. But before we commence, uh, we'd like to acknowledge the Ghana people, the traditional owners, traditional custodians, owners of the Adelaide Plains, and pay respects to elders past, present and future. We recognise and respect their cultural heritage, beliefs and relationship with the land. We acknowledge that they are of continuing importance to the Ghana people living today. I feel honoured to be presenting a discussion of stories and ideas on Ghana land. I also do need to just reinforce some of the key conditions of our COVID management plan approved by SA Health. Please maintain social distancing wherever possible. We strongly encourage the wearing of masks and ask you to follow directions given by COVID marshals, venue staff and volunteers. We also ask you to support the authors by purchasing books at the book tent. And you absolutely cannot go wrong if you purchase these two books, FYI. Um, the books from this session can be bought there and we will have a book signing at the end. And obviously the, the signing will occur over at the table there. So my guests today are C.S. Picat, uh, the internationally acclaimed author of the young adult comic book series Fence and the best-selling adult trilogy Captive Prince. Born in Australia and educated at the University of Melbourne, C.S. Picat has since lived in a number of cities including Tokyo and Perugia and currently resides and writes in Melbourne. Their latest book, Dark Rise, is an epic fantasy where heroes and villains of a long-forgotten war are reborn and begin to draw new battle lines. Lyndall Clipstone is an Adelaide author and former youth librarian. Lake's Edge is Lyndall's debut novel. It's a gothic, gothic fantasy about monsters and magic set on the banks of a cursed lake. And its sequel, Forest Fall, is said scheduled for release later this year. But uh, today we're going to try something a little bit different um, by presenting some provocations to the authors and asking them to respond. At the end of the session, of course, we will also be taking questions from the audience. So to kick off with, I want to ask the title, The Darkness Within, why do you think we're drawn to dark themes? I, I can tell you why I'm drawn to them. <laughs> um, you know, wh when I was young, my father passed away when I was young. And, um, and so I, I grew up in a situation that was, I guess, violent. Um, and I remember this sense that what was happening to me inside the house and the world outside the house just felt really different from one another. The outside world, the normal world, just felt fake, like it wasn't quite real. Whereas the reality in the house that was, you know, that was, that was my truth and my reality. And when I started to read, um, the place where I, I found, you know, my experiences best represented was in fantasy and particularly dark fantasy because the, the extraordinary events and the kind of gods and monsters of, of those books, that's what my emotional landscape felt like at that time. 
Um, and I mean, you can imagine how interested I was in sort of like light literary fiction that's just about suburban existence where some guy opens a fridge and contemplates, you know, the mundanity of his life or whatever. That just, that stuff wasn't real to me. Yeah. Um, and so I think, you know, some of us who have had uh, non-normative experiences are drawn to dark fantasy because we can see our lives reflected there. And then perhaps for those who haven't, it might reflect an emotional or internal reality that they have or even just a cathartic way to access some of those experiences that that's kind of safe. Mm. I think so too. There's like something really empowering about having this sort of like safe space to play out darker, more dangerous experiences in like a way where you can be involved but there's like a narrative structure to it that keeps it contained I suppose like I deal with grief a lot in what I write and I find it quite healing to sort of play through those emotions in like a way where you're confronting like big scary things but being able to write or read a character that kind of overcomes it it's I don't know I I really like it both as an author and as a and as a reader and I think obviously there is a real real value in not shying away from dark themes actually embracing those darker themes just to explore our fears and, and, and move through them a little bit. Um, I wanted to ask them the next question, which is something that really, really always occurs to me. Um, why do we love royals so much? <laughs> what is with our love of the royals? Every dark fantasy book you read, <laughs> it appears that they have to have some royal lineage what do you reckon's going on there I don't know I feel like I kind of boxed the trend because I didn't really have a royal family in my book but I did have like a god kind of lineage so maybe that can be like the royal family a lord a, a lord, lord. <laughs> oh, yeah, I, guess so. I think there's something interesting about seeing what happens when you have like a power structure and then base kind of mm. I guess problems or like see what happens when you subvert that power structure by going against the expectations for it. Like, I think having any kind of boundaries that get sort of pushed against or transgressed is, mm. it always makes for an interesting story. And I guess like the, like a royal family or something like that, it's a very clear way to have that structure. Yeah, I think there is also a way in which the fantasy genre is, is, can, can be not always, but can be a very nostalgic genre. It's kind of looking back in an idealised version of the past, um, which f flows, for, at least for me, flows a lot out of Tolkien, where he imagined a beautiful pastoral past where um, that was much better than the industrial age that he saw the world moving into. Um, and, the you know, there were kings and they were noble and good custodians of the people, and the only problem with a king was that Sometimes you might get a bad king, but that could be quickly fixed by a good king appearing and taking over. Um, there was never any concept that you might overthrow, you know, kings altogether. Um, and um, and so I think, like, that, you know, that there first of all can be um, a reassuring sense of... Um, of that slightly, you know, that old-fashioned, very conservative, almost patriarchal past. Um, the same, the same feelings and vibes that we get when we watch *Downton Abbey*. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but then, for a writer, um, and Linda, I think you do this as well. But um, it's really great to take one of those um, traditional setups and then flip it on its head. 
So it does, as you were saying, set up a set of expectations for the reader for what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. And then within those expectations, you can get in and play, pull the rug out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I like that a lot. I mean, and I think it's sort of, there's also kind of like, it's interesting to me to see what people do with like the responsibility they're given. I guess like with like lineage based power structures, a lot of it is not a chosen responsibility. So that adds like a nice extra layer to the, the pressure of like a character arc when they've got like this sort of inherited title or role that they have to kind of live up to with everything that's going on. Yeah, that's a fantastic observation, I agree. I, I also wanted to talk about bodies in dark fantasy. There's such a feeling that our bodies betray us, that somehow our bodies are either not behaving as we would expect them to or they interact with the world in a way that we're not expecting. What do you think about that idea, that our bodies are actually betraying us in, <laughs> in dark fantasy? You have a lot of those themes in your work. I Wendell. know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think because I write gothic fantasy, which is all very interiority focused and... I think I drew a lot of inspiration from things like Julia Kristeva's theory of objection where there's this very, like, transgressive liminal boundary between, you know, like, your body and how it's sort of meant to be placed in the world and the feelings of, like, wrongness and claustrophobia that comes from when that is subverted. Um, I don't know. I think I particularly really like writing very character-focused, interior-focused books. And so a lot of sort of physical experiences kind of helps to really narrow that down, I guess. So writing a curse that's sort of like literally transforming somebody through like them being kind of taken over from the inside out. And I don't know. And also I guess it's to do with like with power. So Violetta, the main character in my book, like she her sort of position especially right from the start is she has very little power like she sort of comes from nothing she has nothing and so her like will I guess like herself is the only thing she really has to put on the line in defense of everyone she loves so I think it's really interesting to sort of look at all the ways that you can use like the physicality and existence of like a physical body in terms of how it can play out in power structures and things like that. Yeah, and I'm also fascinated by... When I was quite young, I read um, Dan's Macabre by Stephen King, which is... He, it's non-fiction, but it's just him analysing the genre of horror. And, um, and it really stayed with me, the idea that, first of all, we're protective about our bodies and transgressing someone's body is, is like, the, the ultimate way of making them feel uneasy, horrified, um, or afraid. Um, but also that different parts of our body provoke different responses, you know, and s clear in my mind was him saying, if you stick a screwdriver in someone's foot, that makes you a little bit squirmy, but if you stick it in someone's eye, that makes the reader completely freak out. Um, the more that you rely on a certain body part, such, for example, sight, um, the more frightening it is to have it taken away. Um, so I really like the idea that, um, you know, characters can have things that are important to them. They might be values um, or they might be aspects of their physicality, 
um, and that part of narrative surprise and narrative tension can be putting those things under varying degrees of threat. Um, mm. And um, and uh, I also think you know there's a there's a visceral engagement that readers have with the body um, that they don't necessarily have with. Uh, something conceptual that the, the character is defending with their mind. Um, so, uh, so yeah. And then it, fantasy adds a whole new element um, because, um, you know, at Lindo, as you do really well in your book, um, you can have magic, curses, um, fantasy ideas that come in and transform the body. The idea that your own body might be out of your control is also really fascinating. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot there that's, that's interesting to mine as a writer. And I think there's also, you know, even subconsciously that uh, the fact that the monstrous fem feminine has loomed large in, in kind of popular culture for so long, you, that there is something that you want to subvert within that too. Yeah. You know. I mean, that was kind of my background. Like, I came, like, through... I did, like, an arts degree at university with a lot of focus on, like, gothic and, um, like... Laura Mulvey sort of theory yeah, and yeah. things like that. So I guess it's kind of... It's always been something that's interested me and I love playing around with, like, those sort of ideas. Yeah, there's that old idea from, like, second-wave feminism that yeah. our idea of what it is to be male is very clearly understood. Um, and then our idea of what it is to be female is sort of like, oh, everything that's not male. Exactly. <laughs> sort of like a mishmash. Yeah. And that means that the feminine can be kind of, like, boundaryless in our mind. So the fact that it doesn't have clear boundaries means that it's transgressive in a way. I'm really drawn, like, just speaking of dark fantasies, to those kind of female characters that use that ambiguity of what, what am I, what's my boundary as strength. I think like a good modern example of that is like a Catwoman, um, if anyone's seen the new Batman. <laughs> um, but, um, but yeah, so the, and I think the monstrous feminine really does embody that. It's like I can't be contained, you're not exactly sure what I am, I'm changeable and there's an alchemical nature to it. And absolutely. Um, another provocation here. YA is filled with great deceivers. Discuss. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think, yeah, particularly in, in young adult fiction, you know, when you're a child, you believe everything. You just believe what you're told. If you, you know, I don't know if, if anyone here has a child or interacts with kids, you know, you just tell them something and they're so wide-eyed, they'll just absorb it as fact. Then when you you sort of hit puberty and you're growing into a young adult, you're starting to figure out what, what's true and what isn't. Sometimes people could lie to me. <laughs> um, and it's just that time where the mind is starting to navigate the world and figure out what's real, what isn't. I think particularly at the moment that's like super complicated mm. by the internet mm. um, where you'll get images of, th of things that look real but aren't necessarily. Um, and so I think for that reason, young adult fiction is like often quite concerned with who's telling the truth and who's lying to me. What can I rely on and what, what, you know, what is out to deceive me? Um, and for me as a writer, like I'm really interested in setting up narratives that seem true at first um, and then having a an underlying truth or a subversive truth just sort of like slowly start a, a slow true another picture start to form for the reader yeah. um because you know i love those moments where you feel like a paradigm shift oh i thought the world was this way but but it isn't it's mm. it's different than i thought and then suddenly everything is thrown into question 
I think it's just like it's a lot of fun structurally to write like an unreliable narrative as well mm. and like as a reader I'm thinking about like the Captive Prince series like how you sort of putting all the little clues together about mm. it and you're like oh no <laughs> um so it's fun both ways but like yeah there's just I think it's a nice way to play with like experiences of the world too where you can like kind of add this extra layer of twistiness to it I suppose I mean I had a lot of fun with it with like a first person narrative where she's kind of deliberately denying something to herself and to the reader at the same time so there'll be sort of these moments where she starts to like reminisce about an event that happened and then be like no I'm not going to think about it and so then like when it does sort of come through it's sort of like she and the reader are both acknowledging it for the first time together so I had I don't know I had a lot of fun sort of playing with that yeah I think from a writing standpoint as well I really learned in my first series and I was almost shocked by it how much the reader just trusts the protagonist like they believe that what the protagonist is experiencing is what's really happening what the protagonist thinks is right and true is really right and true and you can have so much fun and you can have a lot of fun with that yeah (laughs) I think that's, that's definitely comes to my next point, which is, you know, can YA readers trust the narrator but, or are they always unreliable? Never trust <laughs> you <know>? the narrator. <laughs> and it's kind of interesting because I like your point you make too about the fact that, you know, as you're young you accept everything, but it is actually part of teen experience is questioning every single point too. And I think YA is at that point where those two things... Uh, converging and I um, yeah I think it's a it's really great that all of us uh, question lots of things in YA it's a fabulously safe space to do a lot of that questioning Um, I wanted to talk about strong feelings and I'm reminded of that flight of the Concord song does anyone know it strong feelings I've got strong feelings (laughs) I wanted to to sing it but I don't can't sing Um, but heightened emotions are ever-present in YA books why why do we love that sense of the dramatic in YA I think it's just I mean I particularly really enjoy very sort of heightened emotional experiences when I'm reading which is probably why I'm drawn to reading and writing YA Mm. um I think it's just like a really immersive experience and writing YA gives you this perfect sort of setup because when you are that of like a teen sort of I mean, I know that I was, but, like, every feeling just feels so ever-present and important and it's just this very... (laughs) Yeah, like, everything is just so big and, Mm. like, it's really a really lovely space to write a character with the intensity of those sort of feelings where everything is sort of, like, life or death and, you know, like, the stakes are just naturally so high because there's such a heightened emotion. And I think it's a really good place to play around with like when you add in the other layers of things too like with like the danger or magic or Mm. any kind of thing it just everything sort of turned up the volume emotionally and it's something that I really enjoy both as a writer and a reader yeah I almost missed that time in my life (laughs) where everything was just the most the most um I think that's why I write way it's like I'm yeah like get to channel my 17 year old self yeah that's exactly right (laughs) Um, yeah, it's wonderful to be able to write in a genre where, you know, someone could fall to their knees in passion yeah. or something. Um, <laughs> you can't really do that in adult contemporary realism. No, maybe. <laughs> maybe. 
Um, but yeah, it is a time when your feelings are so extreme and also where you're so, uh, I don't know, how can I put this? You're at the centre of your own narrative yeah, so much. Yeah, I think it's mm. like this time where like the world feels very, like everything just feels very important and interior and like every decision you make has such personal importance. I just, I really love that. I love that feeling. Yeah, and there's a lot the of firsts as well. So yeah. often, you know, anytime you experience something for the first time, that's when you feel its impact. I think so. I mean, my, like, I especially, because I write very romance-heavy books, I really love writing about, like, that sort of experience of, like, the first love and, like, the first time you might let your boundaries down and trust somebody or the first time of feeling safe or having to prove yourself. It's just, it's, again, like, it adds this extra beautiful layer of, like, heightened emotions when it's this first time you're facing something. Yeah. And I've got to say, as an older reader, I also enjoy coming into that space again and being reminded of those feelings, being reminded of how, what it is to feel intensely like that because um, I think all of us need, need reminders throughout our life. <laughs> um, in Lakes Edge, I was particularly conscious of the smells, you know, whether that was camphor or damp or earth. Um, and whereas with, with Dark Rise, it was the smell of water, but also, you know, the smell of the ruins. I, I, I really enjoyed that sense of my senses, you know, being like, like the novel Perfume, being, being acutely aware of, of how your senses interact as well. And both of you um, just do that beautifully in your books. Um, I was wondering, uh, Lyndall, if you wouldn't mind reading a little bit for us. Um, about, uh, no, actually, sorry, I'm going to go to, I'm going to go to, um, I'm going to go to you first. <laughs> so, like I said, <laughs> page uh, 97. So, okay. we'll go to you first, Lyndall, and then, um, Kat, I'll get you to read uh, some of your book as well. So, enjoy hearing okay. a little bit from these books. <laughs> I'm back in my new room. The candle is burned down. Silver light from the full moon shines brightly through the window. Wind stirs the lace curtains. They flutter back and forth like pale ghosts. Strange sounds come from outside. The rustle of leaves, the far-off cry of a nightbird. Shakily, I untangle myself from my quilts and sit up. The air begins to shimmer, the way light reflects over the surface of water. A droplet lands on my cheek, then another on the back of my hand. A damp splotch, dark as ink. I look up, my heartbeat quickening. The ceiling is a shattered pool, blurred and rippling and dripping. The air is cold, cold as a midwinter forest, cold as the Vale woods. My room is filled with water. It spills down over the walls and pools in the corners. It starts to spread across the floor. It rises and rises until the cold black waves wash against my bed. My breath catches and a horrified sound escapes my throat. It's just like the water in the lake. But this isn't real, it's just a dream. The same dream I had last night. Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> and we're going to a, another watery environment with you, Kat, with uh, Dark Rise. I might have just left the book over there, so I'm <laughs> going to nip down and grab it. <laughs> Lucy? <laughs> I was going to say, did you have it committed to memory? That would be very <laughs> oh, cool. That would be amazing, <laughs> but no. um, so 
so just to give a little bit of background to this reading, um, my main, one of my main characters, Violet, has seen a boy chained up in the hold of a ship that's sinking. Um, and she heroically rescues everyone from the ship with his help. But then once she's safe and everyone else is safe, she realises he's still chained up down there and she's going to have to go back in and rescue him. So, Violet took the ship in her sights, ran and jumped. It was like jumping back into hell after having made it out the first time. The Silgare was a deserted wasteland. It groaned dangerously, the mast broken, the deck cracked, planking splintered and protruding. Cargo barrels were smashed and scattered. Half of a ripped sail was hanging across the deck. She swallowed down horror as she descended the stairs into the hold. Images of black fire played behind her eyelids. She expected it to burst out at her at any moment. But inside, the hold was dark and almost fully flooded, water pouring in to swirl ice cold at her chest. She pushed through it, half swimming, past the overturned crates, past the wreckage and signs of the fight. The boy was still chained and alone now in the watery hold. He was breathing carefully, staying quiet in the dark with his head up, as if, even alone, he was trying not to show he was afraid. He was still holding the sword, but she saw that he'd found some way to lock it into its sheath, the same mechanism that must have restrained it before the crates burst open. You can let go of it, she said. His knuckles were white where they gripped the sword. Let it go, let it go down with the ship. After a moment, he nodded and threw it, and she watched the gleaming, wavy length of it sink into the water. Around her, the hold was dripping, the water at chest height and rising. It would not be long now before the rushing water filled every last space of air and dragged the seal gear under. When she looked at the boy, she could see in his eyes that he knew he had no way out, chained to a drowning ship. He looked back at her with his dark eyes. You shouldn't have come back here, she said. You said to get everyone out. So I'd like to ask you both, um, what rich motifs are you mining specifically for your novels when you're forming your fantasy worlds? I usually start with a romance dynamic because that's my favourite part. So I'll sort of... <laughs> it'll be like, OK, here's like this is the situation and then I'll build up the world around it. But I really love making things very atmospheric. So I think I'll often have like a kind of colour palette in mind. So with Lake's Edge, it was like I wanted to see if I could set something spooky in like a summer sort of setting because I think a lot of sort of gothic books are traditionally set in winter, which makes sense. But growing up here in Australia, I felt like summer was definitely like a much more vivid, oppressive kind of atmosphere. And I thought this would be really cool to see if I could get like a sense of claustrophobia. So it was this kind of like the bright sun and like the way the air smells in the middle of summer and that sort of thing, like the, the sort of like a, a window curtain light. And I don't know, like, so it'll be like kind of a mood or a colour and I'll sort of go from there. It's all very, <laughs> very and, and do you use mood boards or anything I do, like that? yeah. I really, I think that's like mood boards and like music playlists are kind of where I often start off. So I'll have like a Pinterest board or like, on my phone, like an Instagram sort of thing where I'll save pictures that I see that just kind of evoke the mood that I want to set. And even when I'm drafting, like I usually have, before I'll write like a chapter on my, on like typing it out, I usually sort of tell myself the chapter on paper and it'll often be something like, I want this to feel like the throne room fight in Star Wars or mm -hmm. something like that. Um, 
And so then when I go to write it, like I have this kind of like mood board in my head of how I want it to look. Do you write to music? I'm just wondering. Um, I kind of, I usually write to sort of kind of very like background music kind of music. So like video game soundtracks <laughs> and things like that. Um, but I, I really love making playlists that I'll listen to sort of in the car or in between times from when I'm working on something to kind of help myself stay in the mood. Can you tell us one of the Lakes yeah. Edge tracks? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to think. Um, I have like the the whole thing was on Spotify. What's one of the tracks? Um, there was like a song in Twilight Hours by Camelot, which is like very angsty. <laughs> <laughs> and that was one of my favorites. That's been on the playlist for a long time. Kat, do you want to talk a little bit about what you're mining with your um, um, process? Well, my my general process starts, you know, it's a cliche, like, write the book you want to read. <laughs> um, but um, I really try and, and get in touch with the kind of... I, I actually do an exercise where I imagine that I'm walking into a bookshop or a library. And you know when you do that, you're, there's a book you're always looking for and you're never exactly finding it. <laughs> um, and so I try and get a sense of what that book is and I'll ask, then I'll sort of interrogate myself, I'll ask myself questions about it. Um, how do I want it to make me feel? Like what kind of relationships or what kind of flavour do I want it to have? Um, so like that's my general process. When it came to Dark Rise, which was my newest series, um, that was very influenced by that kind of English pastoral fantasy that I read when I was growing up. So Lord of the Rings, Narnia, um, The Dark is Rising by Susan Cooper, which my title is like a direct um, allusion to. Um, and, you know, I loved those books um, and yet uh, they did not include me. <laughs> um, and, you know, um, I had this sort of... I think as Australians we all feel this to some extent or another, like everywhere that was once pink on the map. You know, we, we grew up reading these English stories. Yeah. They don't exactly map to our experience and yet we're taught to kind of yearn towards them. So we're taught that... You know, fantasy is medieval, even though Australia never had a medieval period. Um, or that, you know, fantasy is about thick forests with big animals in them, even though Australia has, like, big open spaces and all our deadly creatures are, like, really small. Um, even the cold, frosty north is not the Australian experience. Kind of what you were saying, Linda, like, summer is probably our most oppressive season, not winter. Yeah. Um, mm. Winter's not coming. We couldn't, Australians couldn't care less if winter's coming. Like, like, it great. will rain a bit, but, like, big yeah. deal, right? <laughs> but when summer is coming, it's like, okay, batten down the hatches. Um, so, um, and, and that also, you know, was about the kind of characters that were portrayed as heroes in those series. Like, always a very straight or straightforward, straight English lad, you know, eating hot buttery toast while he walked across some green pleasant land. Um, <laughs> you know, always, you know, a, you know, he was always ethnically you know, white and English. Um, and I just never, you know, saw myself. And so those stories, you know... They were consolation, but they were also oppressive to me at the same time as this uneasy cocktail um, that I nevertheless drank from ceaselessly. Um, and so, you know, it came to Dark Rise and I wanted to write one of those stories, something that felt almost old-fashioned in that sense, that set up one of those worlds and then just flipped it on its head. Um, you know, first set up what you think is going to be a traditional wire fantasy and then pull out the rug. So that was my starting place for Dark Rise. Mm. 
so um, in terms of your favourite elements to write, what your favourite elements might be, you've, you've touched on romance as a starting point, but what are your other favourite bits when you're in the middle of the writing process and you're, it, what, what are you enjoying most? Like what's, where's your happy place with, um, with your writing? I think I really love like the very late stages of revision where yeah. it's, like, I really struggle a lot with drafting, which I, I think is fairly universal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like, there's just, like, getting it from, like, the idea in your head to, like, the page is, like, it's just, I don't think there is a way to have it not be painful. But I really love when it's, like, it's very close to being done and I can go through and, like, make the prose, like, really get lost in, like, writing beautiful prose and playing around with, like, word choices and the mm -hmm. flow of scenes and emotions and just sort of getting it to the stage where it feels almost fully formed. I really love that stage of writing, I think. So I think my goal when I first started writing was I always wanted to write a book where people would pick it up and be like, this prose is so beautiful. Like that was kind of <laughs> my goal as an author was to write something that felt beautiful to read because they were always my favourite type of books. So being able to sort of really get into like the voice of the character and flow of the story and like, Polishing the that part of it is, I think, what I enjoy the most. And yeah, I'm, I'm really <laughs> similar. Like, my favourite part of writing is being finished. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, I find that... Um, it's funny, I'm not really, like, a natural writer. I've got a lot of friends who they're, they're constantly in the flow state and they're just in this slipstream of ideas and it's just running out of their fingertips and, and they find that process kind of e easier I'm not like that at all I have to really work hard to find ideas and then work on an idea to get it from its sort of early deformed state into something that you know feels as inevitable as I can get it to feel um, so actually it's the blank page that just the starting stage where there's nothing that's the most terrifying to me um, and then once I've built you know, once I've got my ideas, I've built my structure and I've built my world, um, I'm a compulsive planner, so I'll, then I'll plot everything out. Um, and so once all of that's done, then, then that's my favourite part, is just executing on the plan. <laughs> um, and, um, and I guess it's the, the writing stage, but with everything kind of locked in. Um, I, lo I love that moment, Lindo, you know, like the click? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, that's working. That beat is wor I finally got that beat working or that moment is working now. Um, th that's the most satisfying part to me. Um, and then in terms of, like, content of what I enjoy to write the most, I think, like, I really love really intense character relationships. I like to just create a dynamic between two characters that's like agonising or seems unresolvable and then throw them together and keep them together while the tension just rises and rises and rises <laughs> and rises. And that's what I like the most, is sort of just writing it an interpersonal, an unbearable or fascinating interpersonal dynamic. I it's so funny. Oh, sorry. I was going to say those character-driven sort of narratives are just they're so satisfying. <laughs> It's so funny because I always imagined that as writers it would be the world building that would be the, the favourite part, like actually working out the rules and, I am and the I terrible at world building. Like my poor agent, every time I send her like a pitch for something and she'll be like, okay, great, well, here we go. I've got a whole lot of questions for you about the world building. And it's like, oh. <laughs> so I'm 
getting better. I have a friend, like we kind of swap, like she wrote um, a fantasy series and she really loves world building and is really good at it and doesn't really like writing romance. So we switch <laughs> and she'll give me all of these notes about how to add in more world building and I'll give her like romance pacing notes. So, Oh, do you have her number? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, can you please read this action scene and tell me if it makes sense? Because, But it's like, I kind of like, I think I'm getting better at building the world and I always sort of have like an idea in my head but I'm definitely not one of those authors who's like yes I love sitting down and writing like pages of world building I'm very jealous of people who are really good at that because it must be like such a fun skill as a reader you just imagine that that, that authors love Um, I, I read about both your uh, the inspirations behind both your novels or the homages that exist in, in your novels um, in my research. And I just would love you both to talk a little bit about, Lyndall, for you to talk about The Secret Garden and um, and for you, Kat, the influence of Lord of the Rings. So yeah. perhaps should we start with you um, just to shake things up, Kat, talk about how Lord of the Rings you feel why there's an homage or even um, The Dark is Rising, either yeah. of those two? I guess I, I, I spoke to that a, a little just earlier, but, um, you know, Lord of the Rings in particular, when I was growing up in the 90s um, and even into the early 2000s, it was just such the dominant influence over all of fantasy. And, um, and, and I think you can still kind of feel its, its fingers in every pie still even, even now. Um, and... Um, the first writer that I saw t- take on Tolkien in a way that um, they did not themselves collapse in the face of Tolkien, um, but actually managed to write a work that could kind of stand alongside without looking like it was crumbling under Tolkien's influence was probably George R. R. Martin with Game of Thrones. Um, and he did that by, you know... Um, kind of fitting himself into the negative space around. So Tolkien is kind of like, you know, the past is this this lovely, beautiful pastoral landscape. Um, and George R. R. Martin said, well, but what if the, the medieval period was brutal and dark? Um, what if it was not destined who was going to become a king, but who might become a king is just going to be a product of chaotic chance? Um, you know, what if the hero is not necessarily going to win um, and that heroism can just get you killed halfway through book one? Um, and you can see how that, um, that his book's really talking to Tolkien and, and, you know, a lot of the shock and surprise and freshness of Game of Thrones wouldn't exist without Tolkien because it relies on subverting the expectations that Tolkien had already set up for us all. Um, and so, you know... and. And so, you know, I mean, Tolkien's an amazing, amazing writer and I I respect him a lot. Um, But there is a lot about his work that does feel, you know, very old-fashioned. Like there's a kind of biological determinism to his work where like an elf will always be good and an orc will always be bad. Um, But I was very interested in, you know, what if an orc could do a heroic act and what if an elf could betray you? Um, And so, you know, I had my own... I had my own, I guess, story that I wanted to tell that engaged with some of the heroic fantasy that Tolkien was producing. Um, I've got a really strong memory of... of, I used to read Lord of the Rings sort of like every every year when I was a kid and I've got a really strong memory of being about 12 or 13 and finally realising like, oh, if, if I was at Helm's Deep, I wouldn't be fighting on the walls. I'd be in the cave with the women and the children like I, I don't want to be there um 
And um, and so, you know, it, a lot of Dark Rise was of, first of all, wanting to construct something that felt very, um, like I said, kind of almost old-fashioned like Tolkien and then getting in there and playing around with it. The thing that surprised me the most, but shouldn't have surprised me but did, and is that I actually went into it with a little bit of arrogance, I think, of like, oh, I'm going to tell this simple tale and then I'll subvert it. And then the hardest part of Dark Rise actually was the simple tale part. Mm -hmm. How do you make one of these classic simple stories still feel really interesting and engaging? And it, it was only then when I was sort of trying to do the same thing that I really realised, fully realised the mastery of Tolkien <laughs> um, and, um, and of writers like him, you know, um, like perhaps the original Star Wars script or that just can tell a simple hero's journey and have it be riveting in its own right. It's very, very difficult to do. It's a very demanding structure. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, yeah, so I, I, I think... Tolkien probably was the biggest influence on Dark Rise. Um, and uh, a lot of it was about who... Um, not just engaging with the world, but also engaging with Tolkien's kind of concept of heroism um, and who gets to be the hero in these kind of stories. Um, you know, t Tolkien really set up, like... Oh, the hero is the least likely person. You know, it's just this young hobbit. But is that really the least likely person in his world to have been a hero? No, right? <laughs> um, there's, um, you know, the least likely person might be an orc or might be, um, you know, one of the races that we didn't really hear from. Um, so, um, so, so yeah, I liked the idea of getting into one of those classic good and evil Dark Lord stories and then and then flipping it if I could. Ooh. Great insights. Yeah, I think for me it kind of came back to a little bit like what you were saying before about growing up Australian and consuming like a lot of this very like British kind of based media. Like it was meant to look like our experience but wasn't. Like I remember reading like Narnia books especially and feeling this big wistfulness for like something that I'd never had that felt like it should I think I feel quite similar when I see like Australian Impressionist painting, like the way that they interpreted like the Australian landscape with this very European lens. And when I, I think as like a teenager, I remember thinking sort of Australia was like very boring and uncool and wishing for something a bit, I don't know, more sophisticated, like this beautiful European landscape in all of these books that I'd grown up reading. And so I think that's The Secret Garden probably comes into that because that was a book that I had as like a childhood favourite and the 90s movie, which was also very vividly, like aesthetically beautiful. And then when I sort of came around to writing a fantasy, I wanted it to feel like where I had come from. So I wanted the setting to feel like where I'd been as a child. So I grew up near the Adelaide Hills and that sort of, like the granite rock kind of mix of European and Australian native plants and things like that. I really wanted to see that in a fantasy because I don't think I ever had. It had always been like either something was very Australian and then as a teenager I'd sort of be like, oh, this is boring because it's Australian. <laughs> or it was very like yeah. cosmopolitan sort of wistful Europe. So mm -hmm. I wanted to see if I could create this kind of lush aesthetic fantasy world that reflected the natural environment that I'd experienced as a kid. 
so that was one side of it. And if the Secret Garden was, I guess, because that had been such a favorite story of mine. And we had like a neighbor who had a very big, beautiful garden. And we used to go and take care of it when she was away. And I think like that sort of was a very, like a lot of European type plants mixed in with this sort of gum tree and moss rock environment. So that was kind of what I drew on when I was creating it. Wonderful. Look, I have um, taken up all your time and I think I should throw open questions to the audience. Is there anyone who's got a question for either Lyndall or Kat or both? Oh, good. Can I take that, your question? Yeah. So I'll just repeat the question for um, for the podcast. Um, basically to say that uh, your question was about villains and why YA fantasy leads to enjoying the character of the villains. I think I've always loved villains. I remember being like vividly disappointed watching Beauty and the Beast as a kid when he turned back into a prince. I was just like, <laughs> I liked him better before. And also with... Sarah going home from the labyrinth, even though narratively it made so much more sense for her not to stay, but I was just like, I would have stayed. That's fine. Let my baby brother be a goblin. So I don't know. For me, it's always just been this really like, just a thing that I've always been really drawn to. And I don't know why we're all sort of drawn to like these Byronic bad boy heroes, but there's just this sort of appeal in like the monster. And I think... Maybe there's something about being the one that the monster cares for, being the one, like, the monster won't hurt. I don't know. There's something about that in fiction that I really love playing around with, like, this sort of sense of power that comes from being safe with something that everybody should be scared with or having, like, a power dynamic with someone that's endlessly powerful or dangerous. And I think maybe as a reader there's kind of like a... It's an interesting experience to see that play out because often in real life, like, obviously it's not a dynamic that you would have normally. Like, mm. So I think it's, like, maybe, like, a... I don't want to say wish fulfillment. Maybe that's not the word I'm looking for. But it's it's a fun sort of thing to enjoy in fiction. I think there's two aspects of it for me. One is, like, as a queer person... Um, like, if you think about our media, especially when I was growing up in the 90s, like, so many villains were queer-coded. Um, I remember realising, like, oh, every Disney villain is queer-coded. Like, Scar, Maleficent, um, Jafar, Ursula. Um, I had the biggest crush on Maleficent when I was <laughs> yeah. a kid. Oh, yeah. And I'm same. Just like, I just, and it just got just... worse when they cast Angelina Jolie. I know. I'm just like, maybe I just really want to be a witch. It's <laughs> yeah. like, oh, honey, no. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, when I was growing up, um, I just loved villains. And I didn't really understand. It took me a really long time to understand. It's because that's the only place I saw myself. Uh, you know, there were, there were no queer heroes. Um, there's still hardly any now. Um, I don't think there's a single Marvel um, hero that's LGBTQ, uh, at least not mainlining movie, but there's plenty of queer-coded villains like Loki. Um, mm. and, so, um, and so, you know, that was just a place where I was seeing myself. And, and I, I, before I had that realisation, you know, I used to think, like, 
just give him a chance. <laughs> um, and I didn't realise that I was thinking, like, just give me a chance. I'm, I'm not a bad person just because I'm queer. Um, I think there's something about, like, definitely for me growing up in the 90s in a small country town, like, I didn't have the language to know that I was queer. Yeah. So there was this kind of, like, why do I have such an obsession with Agent Scully? I don't know. <laughs> why, why is Maleficent some, like, a character that I really identify with? And I think you're right, these queer-quoted characters, like, there's this sort of intrinsic pull towards them. Even, mm. like, for me, like, Jareth in Labyrinth because he's quite, yes. like, <laughs> the makeup and the hair and the, the yeah. leggings and things like that. There's... <laughs> Something in it that there's like this pull that you don't have quite have words for yet when, yeah. you're, when you're young and consuming that. And then I think in a narrative sense, like um, often just the way that narratives are set up, the villain does something, the hero reacts to it. Um, so the villain is the one with agency actually in the story. I think it does set up this unconscious feeling in the reader's mind that when the villain turns up, that's when something really interesting and exciting <laughs> is going to happen. So you start on some level to anticipate, you know, the coolest moment in Rogue One is when Darth Vader walks down that hallway and just slices everyone apart. <laughs> and it's like because he's the one kind of doing... The, the, you really have to work hard to give your hero moments that can have the same impact as your villain doing stuff. Um, and so I think that's part of it as well. It's like an unconscious narrative response. Fantastic. Look, I'm sorry. I hope uh, you feel that they've answered almost all the questions in responding to that one question because, unfortunately, we've run out of time and the next session will be coming on here. But I would encourage you to go over and chat to Lyndall and Kat and ask them their questions um, when they're signing your books. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you very much to the wonderful panellists. Thank you. Thank you, Lyndall. Thank you, Kat.